Father, that is our prayer. Not just our song, but our prayer, Lord, that all our life, all our soul will be lifted up to you. And God, indeed, you are holy. You're the one who is worthy. You are the one to whom all praise belongs. Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for the privilege it is that is ours to sing them. And not only to sing them individually, but also to sing them together. In this place with the uniting of so many different voices, God, I pray that you help us to be encouraged that we didn't come to church today as isolated individuals who happen to have faith, but we are a body. We are brothers and sisters And we should be encouraged that we're not alone. Thank you for your grace in giving us a church. Thank you for your grace that empowers us to live obediently to you. God, thank you for your grace which has liberated us from the bondage of sin. That we no longer have to fear. Because we know that what you have given us through the Holy Spirit because of Christ is hope which can transcend any difficulty, any temptation, any struggle, any fear. You are for us and not against us. God, thank you for these kinds of truths. And as we think about this series that we're going into and we have started the union with Christ, Lord, we ask that you help us to deepen our understanding of what it means. God, help us to understand more clearly the implications of what it means to believe the gospel, to have the Holy Spirit, and to be united with Christ. Lord, we need your wisdom. We need a new ability to think, to feel, to want the things that would bring you glory and honor. Apart from you, we can do nothing. That's why it's right and good in this moment to ask you for those things. Grant to us, Lord, according to your grace and abundant measure, all that we need. Speak to us, minister to us, grant to us everything you know we need. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, Good morning, church. It's good to see you all. You can probably tell by my voice that, uh, you know, I... My wife, Heather, tells me I'm, I'm, I was probably having a cold, but it's just persisted for so long that I blame it on allergies. And uh, if you are somebody who has allergies, then you're my friend. Um, if you don't suffer from allergies at all, I don't like you. Um, it's just, it's one of those things. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was whatever. I don't know. Anyways, so I'm all gunky. And that's just the way it is. Uh, I'm glad that you're here. My name is Phil. I'm one of the pastors here at Golden Hills. And before we jump into our series uh, entitled In Him, Our Union with Christ, I have a couple announcements for you just so you are aware of what's coming up. Uh, Particularly today at 1230, there's a parent meeting for all of our middle school and high school students. So if you're a middle school student or a high school student, uh, make sure that your parents know about that. Parents of middle school and high school students, make sure you're aware of that. 1230 to 2 o'clock. And uh, there'll be time, it's in the high school amphitheater, there'll be time to, to hear about 
uh, camp this summer and some other summer activities and whatnot. So make sure that you are there. Um, on Cinco de Mayo, the, the 5th of May, uh, is National Day of Prayer, which uh, in our country means there's uh, time set apart to just pray. And we as a church, we're going to um, observe that as well. And so from noon to 5 p.m. on May 5th in room 248, which is upstairs, and it's the first room that you meet on the other side of the bathrooms, um, that room will be open. There'll be folks in there praying. You can join with them. Uh, if you need prayer for anything, uh, they will pray with you. Uh, so we wanted to make sure you were aware of that. Anyone's invited. Everyone can come. And then in two weeks, on the 15th of May, we have a baptism celebration, and that's going to take place on the plaza and the courtyard area. So come early, stay late is the concept for those who go to 8.30 service, plan on staying late, so that way you can watch people get baptized. If you come to 10.30, uh, show up earlier than you did, and uh, that way you can watch some folks get baptized. And what's amazing about um, watching these folks get baptized is because of this series that we're going through, we understand from the Bible that baptism is the outward um, sign or the outward expression of one's union with Christ. You can't see whether or not somebody has been united to Christ by faith in the gospel. But what you can see is people getting dry, or people who are dry, getting dunked in water and coming out sopping wet. And what they do in that event is saying, I am now dead and identifying with the death of Jesus and the burial of Jesus and I'm coming up washed anew and I'm identifying with Jesus. I'm with him. And so union with Christ is gonna be symbolically demonstrated for us in folks getting baptized in two weeks. I wanna make sure that you're there for that. You know, uh, this series already, I've had a couple folks stop me and they're like, Phil, this series, I just, I realize it's gonna be over my head. It's gonna be too deep. And I'm just trying to uh, encourage people. It's not too deep. It's not over your head. If you can understand how to get a mortgage and buy a house, you can understand union with Christ. Uh, if you're a high school student and you're taking geometry or trigonometry or calculus, you can understand union with Christ. I don't understand why when it comes to the Bible, we're like allergic to, you know, learning. But when it comes to anything else in life, we're like, oh, yeah, it's just something you got to learn. You just got to. And so I'm just encouraging you to embrace the reality that you don't know as much as you think you do and probably as much as you should. And we all are learning and continuing to learn. The more we read uh, the, of the Bible, the more that we learn and learn and learn. And it's good for us because in our learning, God is transforming. And so I want to encourage you, if you feel that the theology, there's a lot here, maybe over your head, maybe too much, it's not. Uh, hang with me, and we'll continue to plow together through this really important doctrine. And I was thinking about it the other day, and I was thinking, you know what? Um, the ocean is deep. I don't know if you noticed that. It's like really deep, like no one can swim to the bottom of it. But that doesn't keep any of us from dipping our toes in it. And it doesn't prevent any of us from riding a wave or two. And the same kind of concept I want to encourage you with, with this doctrine of union with Christ, it is so profoundly deep. And I'm not sure any of us will ever get to the bottom of it, but it should not prevent us from tipping or dipping our toes in the waters of this union with Christ doctrine and riding a couple of waves and just enjoying our time in this. So that would be my encouragement to you is that hang on. This is going to be good. It's going to be helpful and Lord willing, uh, transformative. One of the things I want to start with is just reminding us as deep as this is, it's very mysterious. 
uh, this doctrine of union with Christ. It's difficult to explain. And we as Christians have lots of things about what we believe which are difficult to explain, but the difficulty that we have in explaining what we believe does not mean what we believe is untrue or shouldn't be believed. For instance, the Trinity. God is one being, and yet he exists as three persons, eternally so. Explain that. It's hard. But just because it's hard, should we just like, eh, I don't care. No. Or think about Jesus being truly God and truly man. Explain that. I can't. It's hard. But that doesn't mean we should just ignore it and neglect it because it's mysterious and difficult to explain. Likewise, with union with Christ, it is difficult to explain. It's mysterious. And I would even say it's mystical in the sense that it's hard to you find words to adequately express and explain what this doctrine means, but we should still nonetheless search it out and learn as much as we can and dive deep into it because I'm telling you, it will change you. So we're going to begin, like I've said uh, last week, and I'm going to say pretty much every week, we're going to look in Ephesians chapter 1, verse, verses 3 through 14. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to pick pieces out of this. And each week is going to build on top of the previous week. And each of the week's sermons is entitled what it is. And it begins with the letter P. Uh, Last week was provenance, which means the origin of our union with Christ. Where did it begin? Or with whom did it begin? And today we're going to look at its product. What does it produce? If you were to ask the question, what does your union with Christ produce in your life? Today will be the answer of what we're going to look at. So let's look in verses, um, let's look in verse three to start with, because where I want to start with us today is acknowledging the reality that union with Christ is mystical. It's mysterious. It's spiritual. It's profound. It's mystical. Verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let me just stop and just help us to see that God has indeed blessed us who are in Christ through faith in the gospel, but the blessing that we receive in Christ through faith of the gospel is spiritual blessing, and the location of that spiritual blessing is the heavenly places. Now to that, I want to add this, Ephesians 2, 6, That through faith in the gospel, God raised, past tense, us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When you put these two verses together, what you have is God is giving spiritual blessings to those who are in Christ, but those spiritual blessings are located in heaven with Christ because that's where he is. And here's the reality, you are there with him in heaven right now. What? No, I'm not. I'm sitting in a pew at Golden Hills. There's something mystical here. There's something mysterious here. There's something spiritual here about your union with Christ. Let me add to that this. If you have been raised with Christ by faith in the gospel, then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, 
and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your true life is hidden with Christ in God, and Christ right now is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, and that is where you receive your spiritual blessings. Explain that to me. This is mysterious. This is spiritual. This is mystical. This is profound. It means at this very moment, though our entire world predominantly has their minds fixated on physical earthly things, and a lot of Christianity is now stupidly preaching that your main priority should be the things of this world, the Bible teaches that your main priority ought to be the things in heaven, and that's where Jesus is seated, from which you receive, through the Spirit, all the spiritual blessings which are profoundly yours in Christ. Don't waste time on things of this earth, but fixate your mind on the things of heaven. Does that mean the things of earth don't matter? Nope. It means the things of this earth are good, so long as they are always pointing you upward and onward to the things of Christ. Being married is good, but being married in order to know more of Christ is better. Traveling the world, good. Traveling the world so you can see the diversity of God's creation, better. And on and on we go. And so what I want to conclude in this little section is simply saying this. Your union with Christ by faith in the gospel is a spiritual union. It means that it only comes about by the Spirit of God. Not by willpower, not by creativity, not by gutting it out and white knuckling it and just doing the best you can. It comes by the Spirit. As the Apostle John says in 1 John 4, we know that we abide in him and he in us. We know that we're united to Christ this way. How do you know if you're united to Christ? How do you know that you receive the spiritual blessing? How do you know that your life is hidden in Christ in the heavenly places? How do you know? It's because God has given us his spirit. Which means if the spirit of God dwells in you because you have believed the gospel, that is proof that you are united to Christ And in being united to Christ, all the fullness of the spiritual blessings which are found in Christ are yours because your true life is hidden with Christ in the heavenly places from which we ought to set our mind and live our lives. To do anything less than that is to not live a truly Christian life. These are deep things, brothers and sisters. These are deep things. But they must be talked about. They must be understood. And what's amazing to me is what I read in verses 4 and 5 of Ephesians 1, which helps us to kind of tie together the spiritual union that we have with Christ and how it applies to our spiritual blessings in Christ and how they're connected to what we talked about last week, which is the love of God and choosing us to be his people. So let's put it all together. Verse 3, 4, and 5 now. Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. I want to show you a text of scripture in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which ties all these things together, which helps us to see how the Spirit's work, God's choosing us, the love of God, and encouraging us in his predestining eternal love in the times of difficulty, how it all kind of comes together in 2 Thessalonians. The church in Thessalonica in modern day Greece was a very young church. It didn't exist for very long by the time Paul's writing this letter. It had all kinds of challenges, persecutions and tribulations that you and I don't even have to dream of. And so Paul's writing these letters to the church to encourage them to stay strong and to stay faithful. And he writes in chapter 2, verse 13, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. And what I want to do is kind of show you how the Apostle Paul uh, puts these things together, these thoughts together. He says, we, we're always ought, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. And then he says what these people are, are and he says they're beloved by the Lord. Or they're beloved of the Lord. He wants them to make sure that they understand, don't you realize that you are the object of God's affections? I want, I want to thank God for you because you are the object of his affections. Now, why do we give such thanks to God? And it says, because God chose you as the first fruits, the first of many more, to be saved. So I give thanks to God for you because God saved you according to his eternal predestining love. But how that came about was through, if you notice this, there's a means that it came about and it's twofold. It's kind of like two sides of the same coin. It was through sanctification by the Spirit and secondly, belief in the truth. In other words, sanctification can also mean holiness or to be set apart. And so when God chooses his people to place his affections on, it's through the Holy Spirit that he calls people out of the world and into himself. And it's also through them believing the gospel. So the two are working together. You believe the gospel, the Spirit is working to set you apart, take you out of the world and bring you to God. God chose to do that to you. And to this, referring to this salvation, God calls you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the gospel is spoken. And then when it is spoken, those who hear it, believe it, the Holy Spirit sanctifies, sets apart out of the world and to God, people whom God has chosen to be the objects of his affection. Now, why does he do that? Verse 15, it's so then, brothers, in the midst of all your trials, tribulations, and hardships, stand firm. Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So Paul gives thanks to the church because they are the beloved of the Lord, chosen because of the sanctifying work of the Spirit through faith in the gospel. So Paul wants to encourage them, stand strong. Don't give up, press on. I want to remind you of Brian Chappell. I read this last week. He says, predestination was never meant to be a doctrinal club 
that is used to batter people into acknowledging God's sovereignty. Rather, the message of God's love preceding our accomplishments and outlasting all our failures was meant to give us a profound sense of confidence and security in God's love so that we will not despair in situations of great difficulty and pain and shame. It's as if God says to you, you always have been in my heart. No matter what happens, I've chosen to love you since before the world began. You are mine. And that is reassuring. And that is what produces security and confidence. So when we read in verse 4 and 5 that these spiritual blessings are coming to those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world, we're seeing that it's God's eternal love that causes to make God a people of his own possession. This isn't the first time we've seen something like this. Uh, at my count, there was four times in the book of Hosea when we went through that series where I talked about Deuteronomy 7, where the people of Israel thought that they could get away with all kinds of sin because they were God's special people. And God humbles them and reminds them, you are a people holy to the Lord, sanctified. That means taken from the world and set apart for God's purposes. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possessions. Out of all the people who are on the face of the earth, of all the people, God chose you. But it wasn't because you were more in number than any people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. In other words, don't be thinking that you're all high and mighty and you got some good things going for you. And God was like, oh, look at these folks. They're pretty cool. I pick them. It's not because of that. Why did God choose Israel and not anyone else? Well, it was because the Lord loves them. That's it. It wasn't because they were awesome. It wasn't because they were cool. It wasn't because of their potential. He chose them because he loves them. And he's keeping an oath that he swore to their fathers that, that he redeemed them from the house of slavery, from Pharaoh. So God chose Israel out of all the peoples of the earth because he simply loved them. And in so doing, they became his treasured possession. Which is what I wanted to reiterate last week. When it comes to our union with Christ, we have to be very clear about this, brothers and sisters. It doesn't come from within you. You can't manufacture this. You can't prove yourself to be worthy of this. You can't do anything in order to move God's hand and make him love you and make you his treasured possession. God is the one who does this. And it's explicitly what we saw in 1 Corinthians 1, that it's because of him that you are in Christ. And this Jesus became to us wisdom from God. Jesus became to us righteousness. Jesus became to us sanctification. That means set apart from the world for the purposes of God. And Jesus is our redemption so that no one can boast. Now, why does this matter? It matters because in times of difficulty and struggle, what Paul's doing is encouraging the believers, reminding them of God's eternal predestining love so that in the midst of their hardships, they would never entertain the crazy thought that God somehow has abandoned them because life is hard. No. God is with us even to the end of the age. He has an inseparable love placed upon us. The affections and his love and his welcome and his embrace are ours because Jesus purchased them for us. And there's no return policy. We're secure in Christ forever and always. But if you notice, there's a purpose. 
It's not just to have that kind of status, but there's a purpose to it. Look at verse four again. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, but then here's that English word that. And whenever you see that in your Bible, the word that or so that, it's an indication of purpose. And next week we're gonna talk about purpose, but for now, let me just say this. There's a purpose to what God desires in saving you. What is it? By you being united to Christ, God wants to produce this in you. He wants you to be holy and he wants you to be blameless before him. He wants you to be holy and he wants you to be blameless. The word holy there, oftentimes when we talk about holiness, you you tend to think of like morality. You tend to think of ethics and you tend to think of like, oh, you know, do good and be good and all that kind of stuff. Like you're an advanced boy scout, you know, that kind of thing. But Holy in the Bible is also to be set apart, to be unique, to be differentiated from the world. And so there's people who don't believe and there's people who do believe and they should not look like each other. There should be a clear marked difference between the two. The way we talk, the way we think, the way we dress, what we value, how we spend our money, how we spend our time should be significantly distinct and different from those who do not believe. That's what it means to be holy. And blameless means to be without accusation. That means you can't be accused of being, you know, wretched. So let me piece these things together and remind you of 2 Timothy 1, which we talked about last week, that God has saved us, and simultaneously to the saving of us, he has also called us to a holy calling. I want to make sure we see this. God saves you, and then God calls you to holiness. Let me put it differently. God saves you from sin, And he saves you to holiness. It's the same thing. Just two sides of the same coin. Which means you can't be holy unless you have first been saved from your sins. And you can't be the opposite. There's a foolishness that's sweeping the nation. That gives the idea that you can be saved from your sins, but you're not necessarily saved to a life of holiness. Like God's grace and love for you is so tremendous and so big that he saves you from your peril, but then he demands nothing of you after that. That's craziness. And we're going to see why that's craziness uh, throughout the rest of this sermon. Before the world began... God in his eternal predestining love has saved us with the purpose of sanctifying us so that through our spiritual union with Christ, we may experience the spiritual blessings that are rightly ours, which produce the true and abiding life that God has for us. It's yours. So what I want to do now is I wanna go and talk about what this union with Christ produces, what it produces in us. And I'm gonna do it on three levels, okay? We're gonna do it firstly on individually. What does being united with Christ do to you as an individual? What does it produce in you? Secondly, what does our union with Christ produce by way of Christian community? And then thirdly, what does our union with Christ produce by way of the cosmos. That means all of creation. So what does it do cosmically? 
And when you think of these levels, it goes from the, the most intimate to the biggest. And so it's like me personally, it's us together, and then it's everything. Because there's an effect that God has worked about in our union with Christ from the individual outward to the collective and then big to the cosmos. And so we're going to do that together. And I want to start with individually, help you understand that our union with Christ produces newness of life. I don't know if you listened to that, but there's rhyming to it. That took me a little while to write. You should appreciate it. Let me say it again. Think about the, listen to the pattern. Our union with Christ produces newness of life. Our union with Christ produces newness of life. And here's the text to show you. This is a text we read every time we do baptisms because we want to make sure everyone understands what we're doing. When it comes to union with Christ, Paul reminds believers that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So if you notice, he's saying, look, if you identify with the death of Jesus, that also means that you are identifying with the life of Jesus. And what is the life of Jesus like? It's newness of life, verse 4. Or he puts it more plainly, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So this resurrection like Jesus is today a different way of saying walking in newness of life. If you identify as a Christian having believed the gospel and you're identifying with the death of Jesus, then you simultaneously must identify with the resurrection of Jesus and if you do that, then it means that you must walk in newness of life. We go on, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now, what is that for? It's so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In other words, if you identify with Jesus and you're united with Jesus in a death like his, that means you are no longer enslaved to sin. You're set free. We continue on. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Yes, we do. So you also, and this you here is plural, y'all, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the application. We see from this text that our union with Christ, what it does is it produces newness of life. This, this is not an optional thing. This is not something which is accidental, like, oops, oh, I became holy. That was weird. Nor is it circumstantial, which means sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Yes, it is mystical because you were not actually hanging on a cross with Jesus 2,000 years ago. We recognize that. All of us should acknowledge that. You weren't there. But in a spiritual sense, in a mystical sense, when you believe the gospel, it is as if you were there, not just witnessing the crucifixion of Jesus, you were on the cross with him. This guarantees 
that whatever Jesus purchased on the cross is not just his possession, but is yours. So what did Jesus purchase on the cross? Absolute forgiveness of sin. Absolute pardon from God. Perfect redemption. Peace. Reconciliation. Union with Christ. Freedom from the dominion of sin. Freedom from the temptation of sin in the sense that you can say no to it. Therefore, our union with Christ's death means that we possess the power to be free from the burden of sin because sin has been brought to nothing when Jesus was crucified. And since you unite with Jesus through faith and gospel, you were there with him. And therefore, you are no longer someone who is dominated by the power of sin if you are united to Christ. Are you tracking with me, church? Okay. So let me say these two things which will be life-changing for you, I think. When you are united to Christ and you identify with his death and resurrection, there's two truths that become true of you. And we'll take these one at a time. The first one is this. By the indwelling Holy Spirit, which unites you to Christ and proves that you are united to Christ, firstly, you have the power to kill sin. You have the power to kill sin. It's not a theory. It's a reality. Let me prove it to you. We look at this in Romans 8. If you live according to the flesh, that is, you put your mind on the things of the earth and you only live for your own selfish ambition and your, and your desires and you give no regard or ultimate regard to God, you're just doing your own thing. If you live like that, you're going to die. But by contrast, if by the Spirit... By the Spirit, you know, the indwelling Spirit, if by that Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So you have a choice before you. The choice is life or death. And those who have the Holy Spirit are empowered by that Spirit to kill sin. And in killing sin, you truly live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. If you're truly united to Christ, then you are truly united to God's family. And being united to God's family means you have all the inheritance which is yours. And all the inheritance which is yours in Christ is given to you through the Spirit. And one of the great joys of our inheritance through the Spirit is the power to kill sin. So that we may truly live for God's glory and our joy. What you live for is an indication of what you draw your life from. Let me say it again. What you live for is an indication of what you draw your life from. If you live for money, you truly believe that real life will come to you through being rich. If you live for the approval of others, through your beauty or through your strength or through your wits or through your, I don't know, sports, then you believe that true life comes to you 
only through the applause of other people. What you live for is an indication of what you draw your life from. So if you, according to Romans 8, are living for the flesh, you are believing that true life exists from things of the earth or things of the world. But if you are led by the Spirit of God and you're living for the Spirit of God, you are indicating that you believe that true life is found in God. So Paul writes that if there's a condition, if the condition is true that you are truly united to Christ by the Holy Spirit and you have the Holy Spirit living in you, then you have the power to kill sin. And I know many people are thinking, man, maybe not right now, but during the course of this, that this is a lot of theology. It's hard to track. It's hard to follow. But I'm telling you, it's immensely practical. If these things that I just said are true, it changes everything. Here's what Paul says. If these things are true, here's what Paul says to you. If you are united to Christ, verses one through four, your life is hidden in Christ. And your life is is with Christ in the heavenly places. If that's true of you, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. If that's true, then put to death whatever is earthly in you. You gotta kill it. Not in order to get life, but you kill it because you have life. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the power. So, kill sin. The last two years, I've seen this verse taken out of context like nobody's business. That second Timothy chapter one, which talks about God has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power. Remember that? Everywhere, bumper stickers, t-shirts, and it usually had to do with wearing masks and getting vaccinated. And I'm going, what a lame application of that text. You mean to tell me the power of the Holy Spirit is just so you don't wear a mask? Anybody could do that. No, no, no. Remember the rest of the verse? Yes, God has given you a spirit of power. What's the next one? You don't know. Sound mind. mind. And last one is self-control. The power of the Holy Spirit that lives in you is so you can have self-control. Was the last time you saw a bumper sticker with that on it? Was the last time you saw somebody make a meme on social media with that? I have the Holy Spirit, now I'm self-controlled. Boo. But this is what Paul's saying. If you have the Holy Spirit, then you have power. Power to do what? To kill sin. To kill sexual immorality. To kill impurity. To kill passion, evil desires, and covetousness. That is wanting what is not rightfully yours, which is idolatry. We talked about that a lot in Hosea. In these you two once walked, you once were living in them. You thought that this is where you brought life. It's not where you get life. And so you need to kill this stuff, this anger, this wrath, this malice, this slander, this obscene talk from your mouth. You better not be lying to each other. Because you put on the new self. You're being newly created. And then verse 11 
And you better not be treating people as though their value is based primarily in their ethnicity or in their heritage because what is ultimate in terms of people's value is that they are in Christ. So the first thing, if you're united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. It's not that you go to amazing worship concerts and, and you lose your mind with the cool lights and the amazing music. That, that, that proves nothing. Entertainment and the Holy Spirit are not the same. If you have the Holy Spirit living in you, the evidence will be the power you exercise to live a self-controlled life. Evidenced by the fact that you are actively killing sin in your life wherever it pops up. Second thing, which is even better. If you have the Holy Spirit living in you because you are united to Christ, then you have been given the power of God to live righteously. Galatians 2, 20. Many of you know this verse. Some people got it tattooed on their arm or something. I've been crucified with Christ. I identify with Christ. All of his saving benefits are mine. I identify with him. I'm united with him. And therefore, it is no longer I who live. Nuh-uh, I'm dead. My passions are dead. My self-interest is dead. But it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, that is the life I now live in this life until the time that glory comes or I come to glory, my life is characterized by faith in the Son of God. And what's so great about the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is he's loved you and he gave himself up for you. If you are united to Christ, that means you've been crucified with him and you must understand that your life is no longer about you, but it's about him. And what it means to have your life fully about him is that you live day by day in faith of the son of God who has so immensely and eternally loved you that he died for you. It means, brothers and sisters, you have to remember that that rebellious, God-hating, God-ignoring, God-belittling youth is dead. If you've been crucified with Christ, it means that when Jesus was there hanging bloody and naked on a cross, bearing the full wrath of God, you weren't just a spectator, you were a participant, you were on the cross with him. Which means, this is amazing, amazing. You have already received the just punishment for your sins. You have already suffered under the wrath of God. You're already dead. You're already buried. You've already borne the full punishment for your sins. Because Jesus did it for you. It's breathtaking. So now there's no condemnation that hangs over your head because you are in Christ Jesus. Thank God. That's a, that's a relief. <laughs> I love what Elise Fitzpatrick says in her book, Found in Him, which is an amazing book. She says this, 
Because of our union with Christ, we are now free to obey as blessed, beloved children of God. We're no longer enslaved to sin's temptations because all the guilt and resulted hatred of God and his law has been obliterated at the cross. Rather than simply telling ourselves that we ought to do better to resist temptation, it is better to remember our union with Christ on the cross and that we have been transformed because of it. We have been set at liberty to love righteousness and the God who has given it to us. You must consider. The word consider there could be a a bunch of different words, like you need to grasp. If you believe in the gospel today, you need to grasp the reality that you're dead to sin and alive to God. You need to understand that you're dead to sin and alive to God. You need to realize, you need to perceive, you need to imagine, you need to think, you need to consider this reality. You're dead to sin. You're alive to God. So when you're at the workplace and you're asked to cut corners and lie about things, in that moment, because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I can't cut corners and lie about this. Jesus is better. When you're tempted in whichever way, the other day, man, I'm driving on the freeway and somebody, and they were racing and I'm like, oh. And I had the temptation to speed up and tell them that's not safe. I've died to sin. I'm alive in Jesus Christ. I don't need to do that. What does it mean to live by faith in the Son of God? Day by day. Here's what I would say. To live by faith in the Son of God is daily to kill sin whenever it pops up because you are empowered by the Spirit to do so and to live righteously whenever the opportunity arises because you've been empowered to do so. As Hebrews 12 says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. There's a good probability that your intimacy with God is shrinking, it's lessening in its intensity, not because God is less, but because there's a holiness vacuum in your life. Or let me put it differently. If we're going to live by faith in the Son of God, day by day, it means that we find him, that is Jesus, better. So you and I are tempted to lie. But if we are going to be dead to sin and alive, to Jesus, with the indwelling Holy Spirit, then to live by faith in the Son of God is to, in the moment of our temptation to lie, we're going to trust that telling the truth is better. You just got to trust that. Or if you're in the midst of temptation in in regards to sexual purity, in that moment you must trust that it is better to be pure than impure. If you are tempted to get revenge or to be vengeful against somebody else who did something to you, you must trust that it is better to forgive than to hold a grudge. If you are tempted to respond to somebody with malice, 
and slander and gossip, you must in that moment trust that it is better to be gentle and compassionate. That's what it looks like to walk by faith in the Son of God every day. And so what Paul says to us is you need to consider this reality. This is who you are. If you are in Christ, this is who you are. You've been given the power to kill sin and the power to live righteously. And so he goes on in Colossians 3, and he says this. This is amazing. Amazing. Put on then, or add this to your life, or live in this way. And he says this, as God's chosen ones who are holy, who are beloved. You must realize the connection between you being the object of God's affections and God's call for you to be holy, connected to God's choosing you for his own possession. For when you bring these things together and you realize your position with God because of Christ, then it becomes incredibly applicable we, as the people of God, united to Christ by the Spirit, need to put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. We need to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds together everything in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were indeed called in one body. And be thankful the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is incredibly practical. If you are united to Christ, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, which is a spirit of power. And that spiritual power enables you to kill sin and to live righteously. Therefore, not a single one of us who are united to Christ can ever sit and, mm, I guess I'll never get over this sin. And we can't have a defeatist attitude as though, well, God made me this way. I guess I just, I don't know. As John Piper says, you need to make war. You need to make war on your sin. And you have the power to fight. And not just to fight in hopes of winning, but you have the power of the Holy Spirit to fight secure and confident that you've already won. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then you will live like this. And by the way, when people, when I talk about like holiness and stuff, here's one thing. I remember speaking at a camp one time. I got invited to speak at a camp. They're like, we love the way you preach about the gospel. Can you come preach the gospel? I was like, yeah, okay, no problem. And I came and I preached through the book of Galatians. And it was amazing. A youth pastor came up to me afterwards. And he's like, I know, we just have one thing. I just really want to talk to you. I really feel like, I really feel like you're dabbling into legalism. And I went, what? He's all, yeah, I mean, you talked a lot about how we should be holy. Yeah, bro. Yeah, I just feel like that's really legalistic. He's like, and you're really intense about it, and you make it seem like you have to do that. Yeah. 
And so I said with a smile on my face, I was like, man, you should be less concerned with my legalism and more concerned with your antinomianism. And, and you don't know what that means. That's why you didn't respond. And he didn't either. <laughs> antinomianism is this. Nomos is the Greek word law, and anti means anti-law. It's the idea that God's grace and love is so profound and so immense that he loves you and gives you grace to such an extent that you don't even have to worry about anything after that. You don't have to obey. It's fine. God loves you. What? No. That's crazy. God saved you and called you to a holy calling. The true gospel is God saves you from sin and saves you to holiness. And if you only focus on well, God saved you from sin. Then you have antinomianism and there's no gospel and you're going to hell. But if you only have God saves you to holiness, then all you have is law and legalism and no gospel and you're going to hell. We need a third way, which is God has saved you from the perils of the wrath of God and he has saved you to a life of holiness in which we can see God and be filled with the immeasurable joys of God as we please him and obey him just as he's commanded and empowered us to do. But not every one of you believe that. Not every one of you actually believe that obedience is better than sin you still believe that sin is better. And that's why you do it, because you love it. And it's a faith issue. So what Paul reminds us of is, look, I say we need to walk by the Spirit. And if you do that, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, because the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, it's obvious what the works of the flesh are. It's obvious what it means to live worldly lives. He says it's sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of, ranger, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and he says, and things like these. I love that last part because you and I, whenever we see lists, we wanna know whether or not they're exhaustive. Does he include everything? Because we're always looking for loopholes. And if he doesn't list everything, then I got, I can do this. No, 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 it's things like this. And I warn you, and this is so sobering and so real. Those who do these things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look, if your life is characterized by these kinds of things, you're fooling yourself if you think you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. How in the world can you think that you have the Holy Spirit living in you when you wake up every day waiting to find out who your next enemy is, who you can hate and slander and you can be divisive and malicious towards and slander? And you see it. It's still happening in our culture today. Somebody's politically or ideologically has a different mindset. And it's just like, yes, now I know my enemy. Now I know who I can hate. What? If your life is characterized by that, you're fooling yourself. Your citizenship is not in heaven. Well, and we know that to be true because the fruit of the Spirit, the, the things that the Spirit produces in us are equally obvious. 
It's love. It's joy. It's peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against such things, there's no law. And I love verse 24. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so if we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Killing sin and living in righteousness is not legalism. It's not joyless and it's not restrictive. In fact, what the Bible teaches is that it is the result of faith. It is the fountain of joy. And it is where one experiences true freedom. But you have to take that on faith. Purity and holiness and righteousness is better by far. And if you don't think, I want you to understand this. If you don't think holiness or righteousness is better than sin, then why in the world would you ever expect to go to heaven where the Bible describes it as a place in which righteousness dwells? C.S. Lewis says, even if you hated righteousness and you went to heaven anyways, it would turn out to be hell for you because you hate it. And so, our union with Christ is something God does by the Spirit. He places the Spirit in us and unites us with Christ, empowering us to kill sin and live righteously. And in so doing, we please God He's glorified, whether it's in word or deed or whatever we do, we do it all for his glory. And in glorifying God, by pleasing him, we get the satisfaction and joy of knowing that we're living the life God has intended us to live. And therefore, we will be satisfied. Sin won't satisfy you. Call my bluff. It will not satisfy. All right, that's just individually. I have five minutes to cover the rest. But I've intentionally front-loaded this because the next two sections we're going to unpack over the next four weeks after today. And so I feel okay with just giving you a, a little sample. The second thing is, if you're united to Christ, not only does it produce in you as an individual the empowerment to kill sin and live righteously, but it also produces true Christian community. Let's look into Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, and I just want to jump verse 18 to 22. Once again, like I said, actually next week we're going to cover this in more detail. But today this will just whet your appetite and just help you realize. (laughs) For through Christ, we both, and he's talking to Jew and Gentile, those who are opposites, they're against each other. Um, In our day and age, probably the best is like, you know, conservatives and liberals or Things like that. Yankees fans and Red Sox fans. Giants and Dodgers. He says, do you not realize that we both, that we have access in one spirit to the Father? So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Christ, you, plural, are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Your union with Christ produces a spiritual building in which God dwells, and this is accomplished by the Spirit. Imagine this pulpit for a second. 
Let's say somebody's in the back of the room way over there. Let's say somebody's right over here by this little red keyboard, and I'm standing right here. And the call is for all of us to come near to the pulpit. And let's say for a moment the pulpit represents Christ. So come to Christ. Wherever you're at, come to Christ. And so a person in the back of the room begins to walk forward. The person here begins to walk forward, and I begin to walk forward. As the three of us in our different locations are drawing nearer to Christ or this pulpit, simultaneously, do you notice what's happening in our relationship to each other? What's happening? We're drawing closer together. In our Christian subculture today, we love the word community, and what we mean is a bunch of Christians got together to do stuff that they don't need to be Christians in order to do. Let's go ride bikes. That's community. Let's go play video games. That's community. No, it's not. You're just riding a bike. You just happen to be Christians. Community is when your eyes are fixated on Jesus and everyone's heading to Jesus. False community is when a bunch of Christians are like, hey, let's do community. Let's do community. You hear this a lot? I mock it because I just, eh. And so what ends up happening is dude in the back and dude up here, perhaps, they're like, let's do community. And so they go together. Do they get any closer to Christ? And the answer is maybe, but not really. Because you need something to unify everyone else. And if you take your eyes off of Christ and you make unity the unity, you'll never get unity. If you make community the point of community, you'll never get community. It's like when you go to bed at night and you're like, sleep, 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 sleep. When you think about sleep, you'll never get sleep. So what Paul's saying is, do you not realize that when you are united to Christ by the Spirit and you're all pursuing Christ together in that one Spirit, that you're not only drawing near to him, but you're drawing near to one another? And we should realize that. Paul says, you know, just like we have one body and we have a bunch of body parts, it's the same thing with the church. There's a lot of people in the church, but there's only one church. And you're all baptized into this church by the Spirit, he says in verse 13. We're all made to drink of this one Spirit. And when we're baptized by the Spirit into Jesus by faith in the gospel, what's amazing is this. There is neither Jew nor Greek, he says. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. Which means our oneness in Christ, because of our union with Christ... It transcends ethnic divisions. It transcends socioeconomic divisions. It transcends gender divisions. Men are not more valuable than women. Women are not more valuable than men. If you are wealthy and you live in a gated community, you are not more valuable than the person living in a van down by the Antioch River. If you are white, if you are black, if you are Asian, you are not more valuable than those who aren't. Jesus in unifying us in himself by the Holy Spirit, our new identity of being in Christ transcends and overcomes all of these divisions. And by merely asserting the idea that somebody is less valuable than somebody else based on one of these kinds of things is so unchristian, it probably has its origin in the pit of hell. <laughs> 
we have communion together because of our union with Christ. Oh, it's good. Oh, it's good. More on that next week. Lastly, let's do this cosmically. And we're going to talk about this on our last and final week where Pastor Josh McCullers will preach. And so I want to steal his thunder. I will merely say this. God is reconciling not only us sinners to himself, but he's reconciling all things to himself. Let me show you in Colossians 1. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, look at these words, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. What does that say? That says Jesus created everything. And not only did he create everything, but all things that were created were created through him, and all things that were created were created for him. So Jesus is the beginning, the middle, and the end. Of what? Everything. Everything. He's before all things. In him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, which means uppermost. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let me say it this way. Jesus created everything. It's through him that everything came. And for him, everything exists. And one day, all of the broken creation that we experience is going to be reconciled in him. He's going to make peace. He's already begun that through the blood of his cross. But one day, he's going to bring it to final completion. And that's called the new heavens and new earth, or simply the new creation. But the new creation involves you and I. He says, Paul says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Meaning we don't just look at people based on their skin color or their income or their education or what they're capable of or incapable of. That's not how we regard people. We used to regard Christ in this way, he says, but we don't do that anymore. No, no, no. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Which means if you and I value people, or value the things of this world on peripheral or merely outward, external circumstances, we don't believe that God is renewing all things. We're not treating people as we ought to. If anyone is united to Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, and all this is from God. And God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and is entrusting us the message of reconciliation. So therefore, brothers and sisters, we are ambassadors for Christ. God's making his appeal through us. And here's the appeal that's going out to all the world. I implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In other words, because God has reconciled you to himself through Jesus, and because God is reconciling all things in the cosmos through Jesus, then we as Christians, our number one objective is to glorify God by being his ambassador, by spreading the good news of the glorious gospel of God's grace that he is reconciling all things, including sinners, to himself. 
And in reconciling all things to himself, God is going to make all things new again. And in making all things new again, it's going to be the very life that we desire and in the world that we desire to live in. It would be the place of utter satisfaction and the fullness of joy. We want anyone and everyone to come and experience alongside of us these glorious and life-changing truths. The union that we have with Christ is life-changing. It will change how you live and how you think. It will change your community how you interact with others, and it will change your perspective on the world around us because God's doing a new thing and he's gonna bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And now we're going to celebrate communion together. I think the best way to understand union with Christ is to understand it as communion with Christ. Communion, it means this, Co-union. He is in us and we are in him. I am in him and he is in me. So when we share communion today as a church, I want you to understand, yes, it's you and Jesus. Yay, you and Jesus. He's with you, you're with him. But not only that, we are with Jesus. So we're going to eat the, the, the bread and you're going to hear the crunch. And I want you to listen. Because we're eating it together. Because we have community in Christ. And I don't know if we're going to slurp, but people will throw back that juice. Let it cascade down their throat. As a sign that we are together. And as we eat this and drink this together, we display our union with Christ individually. We display our union with Christ collectively. And we hope for our union with Christ in the new creation. Here's how Paul put it. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you, for you individually and for you, the church. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink, as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now look at the last verse. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. Because when Jesus returns, it's a wrap. The new creation has come. God has reconciled all things, finally and fully. And so when we celebrate communion together, we're celebrating our individual union with Christ, our collective union with Christ, and we're looking forward to the day cosmically where God will reconcile everything to himself through Christ. So Father, we pray that in our eating and drinking today, you would cause in our minds a great and noble remembrance. God, help us to understand the depth of our union with you. God, you have not left us as orphans. You said that it is good that you leave because if you didn't leave, then the helper, the Holy Spirit would never come. But the fact is you have ascended to the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit indeed has come with power so that we can kill sin, so that we can live righteously, so that we can be empowered to be ambassadors and witnesses for the glorious gospel of your grace that you are reconciling all things to yourself, making peace by the blood of Jesus' cross. God, as we eat this bread and drink this cup, remind us of these things. As we consider the reality 
that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the life that you've given us, breathed into our souls by the Holy Spirit, for whom we give thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.